All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Bayan Bruce, a Senior Director of Applied ML Research at Capital One. Bayan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking about some of your work on deep learning for tabular data. Before we get to that subject or to get us to that subject, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Sure. Happy to. Really exciting to be here. I love this podcast, uh, by the way. I've learned a tremendous amount over the years. So in my current role, I lead applied machine learning research at Capital One. Capital One, of course, is a major financial institution in the United States and Canada and the UK. And we provide a broad range of financial services products to consumers. And within that, we use machine learning for a number of our applications and how we provide those services to our customers. And it's really embedded across the ecosystem, across the business. And we stood up several years ago, a team of applied machine learning researchers, which I lead with the goal of looking at the field of machine learning. And as we know, and as, as you've brought on many guests, the field itself is advancing quite <laughs> rapidly. There's a major breakthrough, it feels like every six months. And so the idea behind applied research was, okay, what of that realm of all possible advancements, is it all relevant to us as a financial services institution? Yeah. And how do we distill that down into something that is useful for the kinds of problems that we try to solve as a company? And then, you know, once you've kind of narrowed the focus a little bit, narrow it even further by saying, which of those techniques, which of those breakthroughs actually work on our data? which of them actually work for specific use cases and problems within the company. You know, that's a hard problem because a lot of the data that gets used in many of the publications is out there. You know, a lot of the benchmark data is very pristine. It's very static. It's used for time and time again in a variety of different experiments. And so it's been picked over by a number of different researchers. When you compare that to the kind of data that we use inside the company, it's messy, it's noisy, it's complicated. You may only have a few people that have really like rolled up their sleeves and, and worked with it for a number of years. And so there's a big gap then between the breakthrough and then what actually works when you try it out on the noisy, messy data. So our team's goal then is to narrow the scope down, figure out what actually works, test it on our use cases, and then take it a step further. Can we actually generalize that, build it into some of our production systems and tools and platforms and make it available for data scientists across the company to then use it in a variety of our use cases? And so the ultimate objective is to shrink the time from when something's discovered or some innovation or some breakthrough is made to when it can be used in servicing our customers in a, in a unique way. And so that's kind of the mandate of my team. I've been with Capital One for five years now doing that. Before Capital One, I had a mixture of background in academia and startups and consulting. And when we look at the areas that we could be focused on, I mean, there's obviously quite a lot of the, the space of machine learning is, is fairly massive. And so we, we tend, <laughs> just barely, <laughs> it's just barely. I mean, you can hardly read everything if you spent all your time just reading all the papers that were out there. Yeah. But we try to like organize ourselves thematically around topic areas within machine learning. Okay. And, and then that changes over time, depending on whether there's something, some new advancement that's really exciting. And we're like, okay, we need to really focus on this. But they, mm -hmm. at the moment, what they are for us is, we have a very strong interest in graph machine learning as a company. As a financial services company, we basically 
work with data that is derived from financial networks, right? When you swipe a credit card, mm -hmm. you are establishing an edge between yourself and a merchant. And so every time our customers process a payment, they are doing so on a network, a financial network at a national global scale. Yeah. And so that network then becomes quite useful in a lot of our applications if you can have machine learning that can handle the kind of cardinality and sparsity that comes with that kind of network. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've been working for a number of years on taking a lot of the advancements that we've seen in graph convolutional networks and even other more traditional graph mining algorithms and applying them to some of our financial services applications. So that's one of the topic areas that's kind of been a long time for us and, and continues to be of high interest. Another one is explainability and interpretability. As a highly regulated financial institution, we have a very high bar for understanding the soundness of our models, understanding the way that our models are making decisions. And so as we use more machine learning across the company, we've thought it very important to invest in figuring out of all the advancements in model explainability and interpretability, which ones can be most useful in helping us manage our risks and manage the way we, we deploy models as a company better. A third one is anomaly detection. So financial services, we are kind of under attack from fraudsters on a daily basis. <laughs> those attacks are extremely creative. We have a lot of different ways of defending against those attacks. Some of those include supervised machine learning, where we've built these massive models that look at all of our credit card transaction data and can predict fairly high accuracy, whether a given transaction is fraudulent or not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're, they're rule-based systems, combination of, of both of these in, in heuristics. But in addition to that, we've realized that there's a, a broad range of anomaly detection algorithms and advancements, uh, particularly as you start to look at how do you scale anomaly detection to the kinds of scale that we're working with that would allow us to capture emerging trends of fraudulent behavior or other kinds of nefarious behavior that might be escaping what a supervised model has seen in the past, right? Your supervised models can only mm -hmm. generalize based on what they know. And if it's a new attack pattern, you have to have something that is not conditioned on that distribution in order to, to capture it and respond to it effectively. And so that's where we see the, the promise in anomaly detection. And then the final area that we're actively focused on, kind of internally focused is around privacy. We've worked for a number of years in how do you generate synthetic data so that you can provide people with an understanding of the, the data that might be in production without actually giving them access to that data. We have more recently started to explore federated learning as a domain where we could potentially train models at the edge. Now, beyond those four areas, which kind of are very like pressing and, and we're focused on at the moment, there's also some areas that we're looking out into the future and saying, okay, this could be a potential game changer. And oftentimes when we're looking at those areas, we partner with major academic institutions to help us flesh out the ideas, help do some of the more experimental research, publish papers, engage with the community. It has a couple of really nice benefits. One is that uh, if it's an area that's underexplored in the research community by funding it and getting a, a community of researchers, it kind of has these like cascading effects where more researchers say, oh, that's actually an interesting topic. Let's yeah. do some more research. And then you fund one thing and three more papers come out from others on the topic because it's become something of, of interest to the community. Nice. And so, you know, within that realm, and we were going to talk about today is this domain of deep learning for tabular data. Mm -hmm. 
tabular data, you know, as we look to our use cases as a financial services company, you know, many of our data problems are formulated within this realm of tabular data. So, and for those who don't know, tabular data is essentially structured data is another term for it. It's a data that comes in a table as opposed to an image, which, you know, have a grid or text where you have a sequence. Tabular data is, you can think of it as this mixed type data set where you have some numerical features, some categorical features, some discrete integers. And usually they're like compiled from a variety of source systems into a single snapshot of the population you're trying to build a model on top of. And then you build and train a, a machine learning model to, to make some kind of prediction. You mentioned earlier kind of this flood of innovation that's been happening in the field. A lot of the flashiest innovations in machine learning have been focused on images and NLP, to name a couple of examples, graphs as well. There's been a bit of work on tabular data, but it doesn't seem like nearly as much, especially considering its prevalence in the broader industry, right? Banks run on tabular data. Most businesses run on tabular data. Any takes on why that is? I think there's a couple of reasons, and it really boils down to the quality of the baselines. I think if you look back two decades <laughs> ago, the quality of the baselines in language, and not to disparage the language researchers from 20 years ago, like they just weren't that great. Or computer vision, they yeah, the room for growth was humongous. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, when you're starting at a very low performing model and you can see every year exponential improvement, well, that gets everybody excited and more research and funding goes towards that. Whereas if we look at the evolution of machine learning for tabular data, you know, you start with very simple linear and logistic models and then kind of advance into your support vector machines. And then you see these non-parametric tree-based models and ensembles of tree-based models like mm-hmm. random forests and gradient-boosted machines. And they do pretty well. (laughs) They do really well. And it's hard to beat them. And there's another piece to it, which is that not only do they do well, they do well on a a wide variety of problems. And the tooling ecosystem that's been built around them, tools like XGBoost and the whole ecosystem of Python for data science has really exploded in the last decade, make it really, really easy to use those techniques. And so there's not a whole lot of incentive to ask, okay, well, what's outside of that paradigm? And I think there's a third factor in it. And that's primarily that like a lot of the big public benchmark data sets are in computer vision and NLP. There hasn't historically existed kind of these big challenge type data sets for tabular data where you can see that benchmark improvement year over year at some of the big conferences like CVPR. Mm-hmm. And that's the other piece that's missing, I think, from the field. But I think the biggest one is the fact that they just, they're really good models. But what you've seen as a result of that is, as you said, like all of this research has focused on computer vision, NLP, and more recently graphs, leaving a huge application space of tabular models outside of the main line of machine learning research. Still a ton of research that happens in the statistical literature, but the stuff you see at ICLR and and NeurIPS and ICML hasn't primarily focused on tabular data for the last few years with some research here and there. But a couple of things that are interesting. One is that we haven't fully explored how the advances that we see in computer vision and NLP apply to tabular data. I think historically we would have said, oh, there's no relationship, right? It's a completely different domain. There's no way to reuse those components. That was actually originally said between computer vision and NLP, right? Like there was this big 
Right. You couldn't use language models for vision and vice versa. And then more recently, we've seen that, uh, you know. And now look where we are. Yeah, exactly. Transformers can be used for everything. You can also, you know, certain instances of language can be modeled quite well with image models. And so I think the same thing could be said for tabular data. It's just a matter of asking the questions and doing the research and doing the exploration. The other piece that is really, really critical is that, you know, all of the research that surrounds computer vision and NLP models, primarily around answering questions of how do we make these models robust? How do we make these models interpretable and explainable? All of those are often predicated on the model itself being a deep learning model, right? Many of these techniques require a differentiable model. And so in a lot of cases, we can't take those techniques and then apply them to your XGBoost model. You've created this bifurcation in what is possible if you use a, a neural network and what is possible if you don't. And by maybe closing that gap and asking, can we do the tabular data in the same paradigm as we're using for computer vision and NLP, can we then take all of that support that's been built around those deep learning models and computer vision and NLP and use them for our tabular data? And so that's one of the exciting things about bridging the gap between the two fields. Mm -hmm. I think like candidly, because the baselines are so strong in for methods like graded boosted trees and random forests, it's that ecosystem of functionality that makes it compelling more than incremental improvements, marginal gains in the overall performance. I mean, everybody gets excited when you have a table where you're performing the best on all the data set that you're testing on. But I, you know, from a practitioner's perspective, it's much more exciting to be able to use the broad suite of capabilities that come with deep learning. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, are there specific things that come to mind there? I generally get the idea of, hey, we've got, you know, this broad set of tooling that, you know, has been built up around deep learning. And some of that I can see, for example, you know, hey, you use TensorFlow or PyTorch, you want to use the same tool chain for everything, just for efficiencies and yeah. learning curves, all that kind of stuff. But some of the other things, I'm not sure if you specifically mentioned, like some of the explainability methods that are based around deep learning do kind of strike a little bit of, hey, we've got these tools to solve these problems that were created by the methods that we're using to solve problems that we can solve otherwise yeah. with better performance that don't have the same opacity. Yeah, that's a good point. They Many of these tools were developed to, as you say, solve some of the problems that come with deep learning. However, mm -hmm. many of the models that you will find used in large industrial systems will be equally opaque. You know, there's, hmm. it's just as hard to interpret or understand a tree-based model that has 10 splits per tree and that has several thousand trees and that has several thousand features that's being used. It's equally hard to explain a single decision of that type of model as it is to explain mm -hmm. a neural network. It's no less complex a model. It's not capturing any fewer interactions. It's just modeling the data in a different way. And so I think we're seeing a growth in complexity of machine learning models, regardless of what you're using, whether it's a deep learning model or, or a tree-based model. But I think what we're seeing is that for deep learning, there's just been this huge investment in trying to understand how they work, because I think 
maybe partially because they've been so effective and people want to know why. They want to know what they're learning. Yeah. As we start to make claims about intelligence, people want to pinpoint factors in the decisioning of these systems. And so that spurred all of this research. And so it's available. It just doesn't work for these other tools that we use. But I think that it's really, really, I mean, it's important not to just say like, oh, because it's good for deep learning, it'll work for these other systems. But there are certain problems that Mm -hmm. we've been able to see the methods that were developed for deep learning to be fairly powerful for tabular data, if particularly in the realm of explainability. And I'll give you an example. There's a subdomain of model explanations, local explanations called counterfactual explanations. I don't know if you're familiar with counterfactual explanations. Elaborate on it for us. Sure. A counterfactual explanation essentially is asking the question, for a given input to a model, what would have had to have been different about this input in order for the model to have made a different prediction? And so you think about a binary classification task, like whether or not a credit card transaction is fraudulent. Well, we can say, okay, given that this transaction was classified fraudulent by this model, what would have been different about that transaction for this model to not have thought that it was fraudulent? So what feature changes would you need? And those feature changes, the difference between the actual features and what would have had to have been different becomes the explanation of why that model made a decision. And there's a lot of different ways you can do this. And there's been many, many papers on the different techniques to do this. A very, very simple way to do this is to take the inputs to your model and project them into a lower dimensional space and then search within that lower dimensional space, uh, which is now a continuous space, right? This is the standard way that a neural network works. The shortest path to another data point where the prediction is different. Mm-hmm. And then come back out from that lower dimensional space using like a decoder to original feature space. And now you have uh, input to a model in the original feature space that if you had used the original model to predict it would have resulted in a different classification. Now, in order to do that, you need a differentiable model. You need to have the ability to train a model such that it can project into that lower dimensional space and use the gradients with respect to the model prediction in order to do that. There are other ways to solve that problem. There are ways that don't require you to use uh, the differentiable model in order to come up with the counterfactual, but that's a very simple and very efficient way to do it. And if you had a deep learning model, you would be able to do that. So that's an example where there are solutions out there. You don't have to use deep learning, but a lot of the paradigm makes it a lot simpler once you adopt it. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned the kind of the emerging relationship between images and text from the perspective of, hey, now we've got this tool that can deal with both of them in the transformer. But that's also kind of unlocked tremendous opportunity kind of downstream in terms of multimodality. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as an opportunity for tabular data as well? I do. I do. I think that's one of the really exciting things is this deep learning is compositional, right? You can take pieces of deep learning systems and build them together and then train them in an end-to-end fashion. Multimodality allows us to do that in ways that we would never be able to do, or we would have to do in very complex ways, historic. A good example of that would be within the domain of graph machine learning. So we have these complex financial networks. We want to build models that help us predict individual entities' status within that network. Those individual nodes will often have a lot of tabular data 
associated with them, in addition to the edges that connect them on the graph. Mm -hmm. And so knowing what the right way to encode that tabular data is and how to build that into a broader differentiable model, a deep learning model on the entirety of the graph, it becomes really, really powerful. And I think the things that are most exciting that we're all getting very excited about, things like Dolly and stable diffusion, are situations where people have figured out how do we fuse together different domains of data in ways that allow us to interact with that data in, in entirely new ways. And quite frankly, I, I'm not entirely certain all the different ways we're going to be able to use multimodality within financial services. But I think once we've proven how you can do it, we're going to see a lot of really exciting applications come out of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear you share your experience around kind of what's difficult in making deep learning work on tabular data or why have we struggled to kind of overcome the bar set by random for us. If we've got a tabular data with N columns, why aren't we, you know, why can't we treat this as an image of square root of N size and just throw it through this, the same tool set? I think fundamentally the data is different. The data tends to come from a, the process that generates the data is usually not actually a single process. Oftentimes in tabular domains, it's multiple processes. You might be looking at some combination of customer's payment history, along with information about where they spend their money. And so those are two completely different systems. Yeah. They're not actually fundamentally related in any other way, other than with regards to a specific customer. You take those data sets, you engineer the features, you combine them together, and now you have a tabular data set. Unlike an image where you have this continuous distribution at least within a specific domain, all the images come from the same distribution. They are fairly well-structured in the fact that you know there's strong local correlations within an image. Nearby pixels are very highly likely to be similar to the one next to them. Columns in a data set have no inherent structure to them. There's nothing other than the peculiarities of the data scientist who put that column next to the other column that determined their proximity to one another. <laughs> so a lot of that inherent structure is missing, which is one of the reasons why transformers are starting to be the thing that's bridging that gap because transformers can look across the entirety of the data set and, and determine what yeah. context is important. They don't have to rely on individual proximities that are hard-coded into the architecture to figure that out. So the, the, that's one is the mixed type and the lack of inherent structure. I think there's been some really interesting work. It's primarily been focused on not necessarily architecturally, how do we handle tabular data, but it's focused on even a level before that, which is how do we encode the data in a way that a deep learning model can utilize that information more effectively. And so a number of researchers have started to point out that varying encoding schemes have a tremendous impact on the quality of a deep learning model for tabular data. And so these encoding schemes can be anything from simple... Talking about one-shot and binning and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Piecewise linear projections, binning, et cetera. All of those have a very strong effect. Another, I think there's going to be more research just into how do we encode data better. I would also be very curious, and I don't know if anybody's done this yet, if those encoding strategies also benefit models like XGBoost and 
random forest models. It might be that rather than doing simple one-hot encoding, like some of these more complex encoding, both for numerical and categorical features, benefits all models. And that would be great. Another thing that's been really profound, and and some of the researchers that have pointed this out, I, I think are doing great work, is that the way that you regularize the model has a profound impact. And that's not surprising. Regularization kind of rules everything in machine learning. And that that goes back to computer vision NLP as well. And interestingly enough, if you go back and look at the original research on like XGBoost, one of the key things they introduced in that model was novel ways of regularizing the decision trees. And so regularization is kind of one of those foundation steps that if you're ever going to walk into a new domain of machine learning, you have to figure out what regularization works for this particular domain. And there was a, a paper a while ago that just found that if you did hyperparameter search over a group of possible regularization techniques for any given model, and you selected the optimal subset of regularization techniques, uh, very simple models like MLPs could perform outstanding on tabular data. It was just the <laughs> right, they called it a cocktail of regularization techniques. And, you know, I think that's a really interesting approach. Interestingly, they also included in what they're calling regularizing a variety of data augmentation methodologies. This is an area where <laughs> NLP and more recently computer vision have seen really interesting research, which is how do we augment the data and use it for self-supervised pre-training in a way that makes our downstream models more robust. And that is, this data augmentation is an area that is almost completely lacking in the tabular data domain. We don't know what works. Yeah. What does that even mean? Is it, I mean... Exactly. I guess synthetic data comes to mind? Yeah, but we don't know what the right techniques are. I mean, I think, you know, something like, cut mix might work well on an image, but do you just apply cut mix to a tabular data set? Now you have to define a a scheme of data augmentation uh, that actually makes sense for this mix type domain in tabular data. And so I think that's an area that's really interesting. There's a final area. So we have encoding, we have regularization, and then there's finally architecture, what architecture really impacts. And, And we've been looking at this for a while now. And we've been partnering with Tom Goldstein at University of Maryland. His grad student, Gauthami Samapelli, wrote a paper a few years ago called SAINT that looked to take a lot of what we've learned in transformer architectures and apply them to tabular data. And this is one of the first papers in this area and kicked off a lot of the subsequent research. And kind of the novelty of that research was twofold. You know, one of the first papers to look at transformer architecture across a row within a given data set. So the goal of a model like that is to ask for all of the features that I'm using to predict this particular outcome, attend to the ones that matter the most for this particular goal. And that seems fairly straightforward. Transformer architectures are designed to do that. Interestingly, Saint also uses this notion of intersample attention. And so it takes subsamples of the training data and it asks not just to attend to the individual row that is for a specific data point, but of all the other data points in that sample, which one is most useful to this prediction task? 
Hmm. And so it almost brings together a transformer architecture with like a k-nearest neighbor classifier. So you're not just attending to yeah. data points that I'm use, interested in, you're also attending to similar data points or maybe even dissimilar data points depending on what's most useful to the task at hand. And Saint was a very foundational paper in the space. Since then, there's been a number of different transformer papers that have looked at how do we apply these architectures. As I mentioned, some people have pointed out that given good encodings and, and good regularization, maybe you don't need a transformer. I think the question of architecture is still an open question as much as the question of regularization and, and encoding is an open question. But I ultimately think that the combination of these three in whatever the final state will be, will be a powerful new tool system for deep learning on tabular data. Mm -hmm. And so how, where are we? Like how far does Saint get us or how close does Saint get us to solving the problem? Is it just kind of demonstrating a particular, you know, a direction? That's a good question. Far depends on the journey that you're on, <laughs> right? Like it all depends on the end destination. If you look at some of the recent survey papers on the field, what they found is that on small data sets, anywhere from zero to 50,000 training samples, it's hard to beat a well-trained XGBoost model tuned hyperparameters. Like that still is the dominant paradigm. You start to see some of these deep learning methods exceed that when you get above 50,000. And so I think for a while, okay. we're going to see a gap between small data sets and large data sets in much in the way that for many years we saw within the field of NLP, if you're working with a small data set, for instance, for sentiment analysis, yeah, it was much more effective to do TF-IDF encoding and a mm -hmm. logistic regression model than it was to use a big language model if you only had 10,000 training samples. Mm -hmm. I think we're in that paradigm. Where NLP eventually went was if you had a large language model that was trained <laughs> in an unsupervised way, you could use it on small data sets and fine tune it quite effectively. So maybe we'll get there with yeah. tabular data. Maybe there will be this notion of large pre-trained tabular data models that can then be used on small data sets and effectively transfer their encoding. Do you think we'll get there? What does that actually mean? Like what is the, <laughs> the underlying relationship between all tabular data that such a thing would exploit? Yeah. That's a great question. We're starting to make progress on that. I don't have an answer to your specific question, but we're starting to make progress. Very simply, we recently submitted a paper with Roman Levin and also Tom Goldstein, Micah Goldblum, Andrew Gordon-Wilson at NYU, a number of other grad students, where we're looking at transfer learning within the realm of tabular data. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is if you have a high level of overlap between the feature space of any given task. So in that case, we're looking at medical predictions. So we have a variety of tabular data sets. A lot of them contain a lot of the similar features and some of them contain distinct features. They're all trying to predict different diseases. And so the idea was, can you pre-train a tabular data set on you know, maybe one of the larger data sets and the predictions for that given disease and then transfer that. Maybe the feature set is slightly different and we had to come up with a novel way of how do you adjust the feature set uh, within this pre-training scheme. But then can you use the learning from that much larger data set into that smaller one? Now, again, that is very different than 
a foundation model, which basically gobbles up all of the language on the internet, <laughs> pre-trains, <laughs> and then can be used for anything. Right. That is transfer learning in a, in a much smaller scope. But I think it's a starting point to say that, yes, you can use a generic feature encoder from a tabular data set and extend it to other tasks in a way that retains the original structures that you've learned. I do think that we would have to answer the fundamental question which you asked, which I think is still not clear in my head, which is what does it mean if you were to go and build a, a model that included every tabular data set in the world? Like what would it mean for a combination of a, yeah. a healthcare data set with a financial services data set with like a wine classification data set? I mean, we've seen all of the data sets that are out there. They're, they're, they're fundamentally different. So what is it learning? Right. On the other hand, maybe kind of rolling back a little bit of my disbelief. <laughs> I think, you know, we're interested in tabular data because tabular data is kind of this fundamental currency of business. Like it's all over the place. But yeah, I suspect that, you know, there's a lot of the same thing happening yes. in lots of places. Like there are a lot of churn models, like there are a lot of fraud models, like there's, I don't know how many kind of super classes we were to try to taxonomize right all of the tabular data sets what that looks like but if you could get access to a whole bunch of churn data sets that related to churn models right i could envision like some kind of foundational churn model that that's right understands propensities to do something based on other things right i, th I don't know <laughs> i think that's right i think that's right even if the inputs are fairly heterogeneous i think mm -hmm. and luckily within industry you know there's there are not very many companies that like span multiple distinct domains where they're trying to mm -hmm. predict credit card fraud and disease outcomes at the same time. Like you don't see that kind of conglomeration. Right. So yes, within an individual companies, this notion of transfer learning or even kind of industry specific foundation models actually do potentially make sense globally across all data sets. That's maybe a little bit. Yeah extreme but yeah i think within specific domains specific applications we could we could certainly think about how you bring together all those different types of data sets and tasks into a single modeling framework mm -hmm. of course the task of pulling those data sets together <laughs> is a very different one from collecting images or text off of the internet yeah it's it's not as easy as just like scraping meaning just the political you know the access to the data itself is very different that's right and many tabular data sets because they are collected within company walls are actually quite sensitive they contain mm -hmm. private customer information that rightly so those companies don't want to share publicly and, and make available very little exists the way that text and images just exist free to grab on the internet within the, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the domain of tabular data sets. But within specific industries, there might be some consortiums that emerge to start to bring together groupings of those types of data sets. If this paradigm seems to be the one that people find promising. Certainly, I think when we look internally at some of these, as you said, whether it's churn or it's marketing or fraud detection, a lot of times you're using either similar overlapping data sets and variations on a theme when you're talking about your task. And, hmm. you know, traditional industry would build a separate model for each one of those use cases. Mm -hmm. 
And when you're first getting started as a company in machine learning, having a separate model for every single thing is probably not that big of a deal. You've got 10, 15, 20 models that you're maintaining. Yeah. When you become a full-fledged adopter of machine learning and you have hundreds of models that you're running in production and they're interacting with each other in, in ways that you didn't anticipate and they're relying on each other in stacked ways, managing that overall system complexity becomes really, really critical and a very big challenge. And so rethinking it as a single pre-trained model with a lot of smaller fine tuning, that actually changes how you do business, that changes the tech stack that you work with, that changes how you think about the overall machine learning ecosystem. So I do think like long-term, it could potentially help a lot of companies reduce their overall machine learning complexity if they think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This question sounds familiar. It's kind of related to the how far, how close thing, but maybe I'm trying to be a little bit more concrete here. Yeah. What do we know about solving tabular data problems? What's most important there? And how do you think about approaching them today for, for you know for the real problems that you're trying to solve today? Yeah, I think that the biggest gap right now that's standing there between some of this research that we've been talking about in deep learning for tabular data and what we would actually use internally is not necessarily kind of at this point, novel architecture or a novel encoding scheme or novel regularization technique. I think each of those has more research and there's going to be some more work that figures out like which is the best or which are the sets of best. I think the biggest gap is tooling is do we have tools that are as easy to use as scikit-learn or XGBoost that you can fit and deploy a tabular data model using deep learning as you can for tree-based methodologies. And when I say easy to use, it's everything from not having to configure a thousand hyperparameters just to figure out what which one's going to work best to is it hardened and well documented? Does it have good logging? Like the whole software engineering side of it is actually, I think, what's missing at the moment. There's been a lot of great research, but now there just needs to be some really good quality engineering that takes that and figures out, okay, can we build libraries or packages that make this so that it's not a data scientist figuring out how to apply research, it's a data scientist using a tool, right? Like that's the gap, is like the data scientist. That sounds like a fairly well-stated problem. And I know Capital One loves open source. Like, is that, are yeah. you working on that? <laughs> yeah, I, that is, that's a well-stated problem because it's something that we're, <laughs> we're thinking about and working on, yes. But I, I do think that's the biggest gap at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe this is a tangent, but you mentioned graph learning, deep learning on graphs, that whole direction. Do you think that that plays into working with tabular data in a big way? Like is each of the rows in a tabular data set kind of a node in a graph and that's going to help us figure all this out? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think one that's not well studied enough. I mentioned in Saint how the Saint architecture takes a transformer and applies it to each of the rows. And then it mm -hmm. takes that same transformer and look across rows in a subsample of the data. If you think about what that's doing is it's essentially treating the data set like a similarity graph. It's saying, okay, I've got all these data points. Each one of them is a node in this data set or at least within the sample of it. Attend to the neighborhood around me that is most useful for this task. And so it transforms it into a graph. But I don't think 
even when we worked on the on the paper, we, we didn't really dive into that element of it and and looked at the connection between, okay, now that you've structured it as a graph or you're even thinking about it as a graph, how does that change how you approach the learning task? I definitely think this question of how do we create graphs from tabular data is an important one. As we look to leverage more graph machine learning, there is a big question of how do we take and it's not always tabular in the sense of like features in a model. Sometimes it's just tabular data of records about a customer that we want to build into an actual network. There's a fundamental challenge in how do you go from that structure of a data table into something that you can use, a graph convolutional network, or even something simpler like belief propagation. It's a really hard problem oftentimes to go from data tables into graphs. And I think that's one that we're actively looking at at the moment. Hmm. Where would you say the kind of research frontier is and is kind of heading around this problem, deep learning for our tabular data? I think, you know, one we mentioned, which is uh, self-supervised pre-training. What are the... Transformers and so, yeah. And particularly, what is the right way to augment data going into that? What's the right way to build transformer backbones for tabular data? I think there's going to be continued study on encoders and, and regularizers and how you do the optimal combination of those. I don't think that's going away. And then I think from a theory perspective, we have to understand a little bit more about, particularly as you start to combine data sets and as those data sets get more and more heterogeneous, what exactly the architecture is doing in that domain that it makes it at all useful for any of the downstream tasks. So as we start to push into larger pre-training, maybe this idea of foundation models for tabular data, there's open questions, not just on how do you do it, but like, what does it even mean and, and why would you do it? Because I, I think most people, if you mention that to them, will have a very similar response to the one you did, which is, why would you even do that? That doesn't make any sense for tabular <laughs> data. And I think that's a very reasonable response. It doesn't make any sense. And so if we're going to, do that research, which I do believe we will, and we have to, because that's the direction of that we're seeing many of the domains of machine learning research go. We, we need to answer that question. And what does doing that research mean? Is it just collecting more and more and more data sets and seeing what happens when we try to train models on them? Yeah, collecting more and more data sets, seeing what happens when we try to train models on them, understanding how to combine those data sets, how to train across multiple domains, whether I mean, we talked about multimodality, but even how do you build a transformer architecture that can then take in a variety of different tabular data sets? Some might combine a bunch of categorical features. Some might be very, very small data sets. Other might be very large data sets. The scale and complexity of the diversity within the tabular domain is much greater than it is in computer vision NLP. Those are the kinds of questions we have to answer is, is how do we build things that can generalize using all of that diverse data? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we, we kind of set this up in talking about there are all these benefits that you get from the deep learning ecosystem and tooling. The disadvantage is that, you know, we're not kind of at performance parity with the established methods, XGBoost and the like, but you've also kind of highlighted that there are key gaps in terms of the tooling. Do you need to get to performance parity in order for the benefits of the deep learning ecosystem to 
I actually think that we are already at performance parity. If you look at a lot of the research, many of these models are performing as well, sometimes worse, sometimes better, but on average as well as XGBoost. And so that's why I was suggesting that it's the tooling ecosystem that needs to improve. Mm, okay. I think many data scientists love the benefit of well-defined APIs like Scikit-Learn and XGBoost and that they yeah. they don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about how do I get this piece of software to work for me? Mm -hmm. They just know that the piece of software has a fit function and a predict function and maybe six or seven hyperparameters that they have to know about and they have to know what those six or seven hyperparameters do with respect to how well that model operates. Many data scientists aren't used to, particularly ones who aren't working on computer vision and NLP, having to answer 400 different questions around whether I use this particular type of encoder, whether I use these sets of regularizers, how deep does it need to be? What are the dimensions of each of my, you know, different encoding, transformer encoders, et cetera? You know, there's so many choices in deep learning. It makes it really, really hard to plug and play the way that you can plug and play with like a an XGBoost model or a random forest. And so I think as we start to learn what things work the best, we'll get to a place within the deep learning tabular data ecosystem in which there are some tools, they have very simple APIs, and a lot of that decision-making has already been made in the way that the, the tool has been built. And it reduces the complexity and the decisions that the data scientist has to make when they're choosing to use that model. And I think that's when we'll finally see widespread adoption. And once that's in place, then all of the other stuff, like the explainability, the ability to quantify uncertainty, all of the things that have been developed around deep learning will start to be added on top of that. But that that very simple interface, that very simple API, I think is, is the major hurdle that a lot of people face when they try to start using deep learning for tabular data. They've, there's just too much for them to figure out. Mm, got it, got it, awesome. Well, Bayan, this has been a wonderful chat. It's been a while since I've had a guest on the show talking about the the topic, surprising as important as it is. <laughs> but this has been a great chat to get caught up on it. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you today, Sam. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.